to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin. And every episode, I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. I'm here today with Dr. Omar Reader, an author and consultant psychiatrist who has devoted much of his career to helping people recover from psychological trauma caused during the Libyan war and has said that he loves working on the front lines, taking care of the voiceless, the forgotten, and those living in the shadows and on the margins of society. Yet he also acknowledges the multitude of more subtle ways that trauma can show up in our lives. In his book, Untangled, he explores the impact that trauma can have on children and their families, while emphasising the capacity that we all have to heal from even extreme adversity through shared courage and compassion. Dr Omar moved from Libya to the United States in 2002 and currently lives in Oregon with his wife and their three daughters, where he works as a psychiatrist for the non-profit Providence Health System. Omar, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, Vance. My pleasure. So I wanted to start off by asking you to share your moment of tenderness with us. So the idea behind the Tenderness Revolution podcast is that essentially our lives are made up of all these little stories that are stitched together. And when we shine a light on scenes where we felt a profound sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, moments where we felt seen or understood or that we had a deeper relationship to the world around us, it's as though we're awakened to greater meaning and purpose. I'd really love to hear your moment of tenderness, Omar. And thank you very much. That's very powerful. I mean, I think the world needs more and more of uh, these moments. Uh, I have many, and I think most of them, they stem to come from uh, traumatic experiences. So I I see my trauma story as a privilege, and I try to uh, use it as a tool for healing myself and everybody around me. So my encounters with trauma started at a very, very early age. I was only six years old, uh, and uh, my sister was 14. She went blind and then she quickly lost her life to brain cancer. So she was the reason why I wanted to become a physician. So I always uh, fantasized about becoming a brain surgeon. And I did very well in medical school. But then, you know, every time I go to the operating room, I end up fainting on the floor. They told me I cannot be a good neurosurgeon if I am always unconscious. So I, I wanted to do something with the brain. I found my passion in psychiatry. Wow. Oh, my gosh, Omar, what a story and what a thing to go through as a child. Um, did, did you have any other siblings? Was it just you and your sister growing up? Yeah, we, are, we come from a large family. So we, are, we, we, we were 12 siblings. 
but then uh, we lost one sister and then we lost a brother. So now we are 10 and uh, I am the middle child. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's, that must have been so unbelievably traumatic to experience that as a child. And I can imagine it must have just been so confusing for you to kind of try and understand, like, how can this happen to my sister and what's happening with her? Why is she unwell? And someone who is your sibling and your peer, I would imagine it would really shake you to the core and sort of make you really sort of doubt I don't know what what it means to be alive and and also doubt your safety and wonder is the same thing going to happen to you did did any of those things go through your mind yeah I mean you struggle with big questions as a young you know child especially when you see the adults around you having big emotions so my mm. mom and dad were completely heartbroken they ended up taking my sister to the United Kingdom but unfortunately, the, the cancer was too advanced to save her life. Mm. So I just uh, had the questions like, you know, uh, how come children get hurt when they're very young? They haven't seen anything yet. And, and then uh, mom and dad were extremely emotionally available. So they helped me process some of my trauma. But of course, the things are never the same when you lose a loved one. Gosh, absolutely. It's so hard to grapple with why and how to experience loss at that age. It's, I mean, it's completely life-changing and obviously it's, it's shaped you. It's completely shaped who you are today. Almost as though you're sort of trying to answer those questions in the work that you do now and you've been trying to answer them ever since. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had multiple, multiple encounters after that age. I mean, when I was 11, I was just coming back home from school. And, you know, in the 1980s, like Libya, parents, they did not educate their children that, you know, encounters with adults can be very dangerous or even deadly. So this guy, he stopped his car and he pretended to ask for directions. So I thought nothing of it. And I went to the car and I found him to be naked from the waist and down, and he tried to kidnap me. Oh, but I, I was very lucky to run away and hide behind bushes. And I was watching him until he gave up and, you know, uh, took off. Mm. But that uh, ignited a passion in me about protecting children, especially from sexual trauma. Gosh, it's so powerful that you had these really traumatic experiences and then you've used them to kind of fuel your yeah the you know the passion that you now have in the work that you do there's so much that I want to ask you about I think the work that you do is is absolutely well it's it's essential and it's it's absolutely incredible you've obviously touched so many lives I've been I've been reading your book Untangled and I think it's written with so much tenderness actually and there are so many moments in it where it's almost like you feel comforted and relieved the way that you describe hope. It seems to be a big part of the book, this sense that no matter how traumatic the experience, there's always hope. 
that you can heal from that experience through compassion and through empathy. I I see that a lot of the work you do is around this parent-child relationship, which seems to be central to everything. And in the book, you say of parents, we nourish so they can flourish. Um, And that's a really beautiful phrase. But one of the things that I did wonder um, in reading that was what happens actually if the parents aren't able to nourish their child because they're distracted or they're struggling with things in their own life. Maybe they're even dealing with anxiety or depression. Does their inability to be there emotionally for their child, does that cause a type of trauma in the child? Yeah, I mean, being a psychiatrist, even though I am an adult psychiatrist, I love and enjoy working with children. Uh, This came from life experiences, just going through the immigration journey, being an asylum seeker and a refugee, and then eventually working with asylum seekers and refugees in different parts of the world. But, uh, you know, there are things that I see commonly that are very, very important for us as humans. One is hope, another one is faith. And uh, usually if we lose both faith and hope, uh, some people will give up on life and we see people engaging in self-destructive or even, unfortunately, suicidal behaviors. Um, But... uh, big thing in the family context is love and love does not only mean a superficial you know tenderness with the the people around you but uh, you know i came up with love stands for listening so deep listening with the desire to understand and then o stands for options so not everything that i think is the right thing for my children might be the right thing for them and then v is validation i validate their experience even if i don't agree with it, and eventually E for empowerment. So I see my children as part of the solution, not only as part of the problem. And uh, there is no bad parent. I think uh, all parents are trying their best given their circumstances. Many of us, we run on empty tanks and we try to nurse our own wounds while taking care of the wounds of others. And uh, you know, maybe we don't have enough tools or the necessary skills So I try to look at parents with compassion too, because, you know, there is that sense of attachment that maybe they were never given when they were children. And uh, it's very difficult to give something that you have not received. But I believe that with, um, you know, self-discipline and with active investment and being deliberate parent, you can eventually find the room for compassion for your own needs, but also for the needs of your loved ones. Well, that's such a beautiful um, an acronym. I love the way that you you made that, that love an acronym. And I also really appreciate you saying that there's no such thing as a bad parent, because I think there is actually quite a divisive approach to parenting these days. And I think a lot of people tend to sift parents into good and bad. And there's a lot of judgment um, that's inflicted on parents. And I actually agree with you. I, I think you're completely right. I really do believe that everyone in life is just generally trying their best. And if they're, even if their behavior is destructive. I, I think it's it's because of unconscious 
drives um I don't think that people consciously try to do bad things um and that's why I think that that this whole standpoint of trauma is is very important and it's it's fascinating and I think it needs to be shared I don't know if you're aware of the work of um of Gabor Mate yeah so the wisdom of trauma yeah, so I, I'm really interested in the way he describes this new view of trauma. And it's it's actually really fascinating. So he describes it as something that can be healed, but he seems to be kind of widening the net of what can be considered traumatic or a trauma. So he says it's not just caused by what we might consider to be sort of disastrous events. He says, trauma isn't what happened to you. It's what happened inside of you, as in what it meant to you. And it can also be what doesn't happen to you and what should have happened to you, such as when your essential human needs weren't met. Now, that's really fascinating because I think also there can be a certain sense of sifting people into well this was a really bad thing that you went through so you're allowed to really struggle whereas this thing wasn't quite as bad could you talk for us a bit about trauma and how how it's perceived and and what constitutes trauma yeah I mean it is a big big field as you know the field of uh, psychological trauma and emotional wounds but trauma in Greek means wound and uh, to be wounded does not have to mean you are broken, should not carry any judgment. Uh, all of us are wounded in one way or another, as you're aware of the you know, adverse childhood experiences study, that people are most likely have been traumatized multiple times when they were children. So it is like a, a scale of uh, zero to 10, how many times you're traumatized by number of uh, traumatic experiences before the age of 18 and this includes like physical abuse and sexual abuse and emotional abuse physical and emotional neglect and also like uh, domestic violence divorce of parents substance abuse of parents uh, incarceration and uh, mental illness of uh, a caregiver so they they found out the higher the score the most likely uh, the negative impact but that's not you know, linear relationship, because some children, maybe they get traumatized by they have a, an adult caregiver that will take care of them. Um, there are other children, maybe they were traumatized with quote unquote, a small incident, but they, um, they went through it alone. And being alone during a traumatic experience is a very lonely experience. And uh, it's something that's unfair for a child to try to figure out on their own. And children, they have the firm belief, the core beliefs that we have, that the world is a safe place and adults should be trusted Mm. with my needs. So when uh, the world is no longer safe or if the adults are the predators, um, then this can be very confusing to the psyche. So I agree with you. Wound, uh, you know, is not something that's uh, most of the time visible. We deal with many, many invisible wounds. And most of our PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is not necessarily a mental illness. It's more a moral distress. It affects our deep soul and our ethical and existential, you know, existence. Gosh, that's fascinating. So 
when you say that um, PTSD is more of a sort of existential experience, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, um, we notice that if uh, people are affected by uh, natural disaster, and including the global pandemic right now, people tend to recover from that quicker than if uh, the trauma is caused by another human. So man-made and interpersonal oh. violence okay. is something that will affect my psyche and my deep soul very deeply because it will affect my core beliefs of uh, goodness of others and that a human should not hurt other humans. So, um, for example, we found out if uh, you have been physically tortured or if you have been sexually violated, these are very intimate you know, experiences because somebody touched me without my permission. Mm. And uh, most of the time I will uh, take this experience and internalize it and say, there is something fundamentally wrong with me. I might mm. hate my body. I might actually start to engage in self-harm mm. because I wanted to undo the damage that was done to me. Mm. So there's that element of sort of self-blame or in trying to find an answer or an explanation for why did this happen, it's often the case that the, the mind will reach for a, a sense of, well, there must be something bad about me or there must be something wrong with me for this to have happened to me. Is that, is yeah, that right? I remember also most of the abusers, they will um, try to insert that thought in your mind. Wow. They will say, you know, uh, this is a, a topic that's taboo especially if it's in the context of incest or if somebody that's familiar to the family is the abuser or the predator. Mm. And there will be lots of silence in the room and the children will keep the secret. And most of the time they will have somatic symptoms. They might have behavioral symptoms. It will affect their body. Like uh, Dr. Basil van der Kolk, he wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score because the trauma lives in the body, but it also lives in the psyche lives in the heart and lives in the soul. So that's why very important. I, I really, really try to work with the trauma survivors on challenging these negative thoughts and try to reframe what happens to them. Yes, absolutely. I think that that thing of working with the family is just, it's everything. And like you said, you know, that's how you stop the cycle of trauma from being repeated through generations. How exactly does that happen? How do cycles of trauma repeat through families over generations? Yeah, I mean, um, I can use my own example. Uh, so I was working as an emergency room physician in uh, Benghazi, Libya, my hometown. And then uh, in the year 1999, uh, the Libyan government decided to place my name on their blacklist. So I, I had to leave the country because of my humanitarian activities. And I took a boat across the Mediterranean Sea to the United Kingdom. So I ended up going through the asylum seeking. And eventually my asylum was denied in, in Great Britain because the judge, the immigration judge, he said, Omar, I cannot see any evidence of uh, physical torture on your body. And I said, you know, your honor, you failed to see the scars on my mind and the wounds in my soul. And these are invisible wounds that we carry as a trauma survivors. But then, you know, I ended up coming to the United States after meeting my wife who's a Libyan American and then uh, going through, you know, the training in psychiatry, then finding out that my home 
a country, Libya, went through a bloody civil war that I, I flew back and forth to Libya multiple times, leaving my wife and very tiny children behind because I have uh, other family to take care of. And I have millions of people who can use my expertise. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, every time I come back to America, I find my children to be extremely anxious. Mm. And uh, I had an option. I have a choice to make. I can care about every child in the world and forget my own, or I can try to help both. So I started to learn about play therapy and art therapy and start to work with my children on family bonding. And we created together the daughter-father bonding project. It's a whole you know, YouTube channel. This is how I want to break the cycle for them. I want them to have a emotionally available and safe parents. Oh my gosh, that's that's such an incredible story, Omar. I can't believe that you went all the way across the Mediterranean on a boat. It must have been so terrifying and then humiliating as well to go through that experience of, of having your asylum rejected. And it's so interesting to hear about your relationship with your daughters and I really do relate to that because as a parent, I feel like we're always pulled in so many directions and there's this constant deep desire to connect with our children and to be there for them whilst also being who we are you know in a wider context as well and using our talents and our gifts you know in a wider context outside of the family and there's always this tension I think between balancing the two and uh, what what kind of things make up the the father-daughter um, what did you say it was bonding project? Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there should be no tension really between our professional and our personal needs. I think the more we blossom personally, the more we blossom professionally too. So it's uh, very important to find that balance. And uh, I don't spend all of my energy on my patients or outside the house. And then I come to my family and only have the leftovers for them. This is unfair. Mm. And uh, I should have something remaining in me mm. and to have my own needs met too. So we need to practice self-care and self-compassion because, uh, you know, if I am not available for them, I will be most likely um, irritable. And many times I see it when I'm having a difficult time at uh, the hospital or if I'm uh, on call after a very long and difficult night, I might not be emotionally available or kind towards my loved ones. So it's, it's very important that we pay attention to our needs and take care of our needs. We deserve to have personal time, but uh, parenting should not be a burden. So we should not be uh, around each other with lots of tension. Our loved ones should not walk around us like they are walking on eggshells. Um, you know, we need to be relaxed around one another because, uh, you know, there is difference between a house and a home. A home becomes home only because of the family dynamics between family members so it's very important that uh, you know um, i think the most lucky parent is the one who their children feel safe when they enter the house mm. and uh, the unfortunate one is the one whose family will breathe better when they exit the house mm. and i call that uh, you know losing the american dream chasing it so mm. we have a uh, something here in America we call the American dream, which is mm -hmm. you, you come to this country and it's the land of opportunity and you try to work long hours and chase materialistic needs of your children. 
But remember, they have emotional needs too. If mm. uh, my children go to bed with full stomach and empty heart, then I have lost the American dream because the dream is our families. Oh, absolutely. And that makes me wonder about the fact that, as Dr. Um, Gabor Mate says, we're a traumatized world. And he says one of the reasons for this is because attachment and connection are not prioritized in our society. So for example, in the US, he cites the fact that, you know, paid maternity leave as such doesn't really exist. Um, And basic human needs are not being met. So he says, therefore, we're creating traumatized adults. So do you think it always comes back to this thing of, of attachment and connection in early life? Yeah, I think it's very important to have a human connection. I, I think it's the solution to most of our relational wounds is to heal relationally too. So um, we can do that even as families or as communities. Uh, what we see now as hate and discrimination and racism, many times there is lots of room for healing of we, uh, our children and our women. Usually women activities are very healing. If they sit together and they work through our perceived differences and try to see the divine in each other because we offer each other lots of beauty. If I you know, dismiss someone because they have a different background, I'm going to miss a lot on their beauty that they can offer me personally. So I, I agree with you. I mean, um, attachment is something that uh, we can do not only as children, but also as adults. I think it's never late to attach, um, better late than never. Oh, absolutely. And there's always that, that, you know, under score of hope in your work, which is what I really love about it. But it does seem as though, you know, in terms of a wider issue, it does seem that, you know, our political and social systems in especially in the West, they just don't really support fundamental human needs of attachment, all the emphasis is on consumerism and work you know do you think that that's causing this traumatized society that we live in and and maybe more than that it's preventing us from really seeing the trauma in each other and then being able to address that and work with it yeah I love that Uh, I, I wish if we can see the trauma in each other and treat one another with tenderness uh, that will be a wonderful world that we can live in. But uh, you bring two points. One is uh, my work with my colleagues. Many of them I call wounded healers. And that's uh, actually the title of my new book uh, coming up in February of 2022. The wounded healer, um, I see many, many of my colleagues, they dismiss their needs because there is somebody else who is relying on them. And many of them, they are quite overwhelmed with the, the lack of a human connection and treating our patients as a chick boxes. And many times with the pressure of the electronic medical records, many times I'm talking to the computer more than I talk to the human. So I miss a lot on listening to the trauma story of my clients. At the same time as a, you know, a caregiver, I'm overwhelmed with the amount of uh, paperwork that I don't tend to my needs. And I might become irritable with my loved ones or I might uh, 
sort to, you know, numb my trauma through substance use or even self-destructive behaviors. So this is one. The other one is the impact of this dynamic on the children. And, uh, uh, you know, if uh, something as big as the global pandemic did not wake us up, I don't know what it, what it will take. So mm -hmm. right now there is lots of focus on trying to catch up academically. Our children have to go back to school as soon as possible. And let us just, uh, you know, stuff all of this information and their, you know, young traumatized minds. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, social and emotional learning right now. I want really every school to practice art and play and give children safe spaces so they can try to process this uh, huge trauma. Emotional expression is something we need to make permissible for our children. So I want uh, lots of uh, compassion from the parents and the students and also the teachers when it comes to the next academic year. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought up this subject of homeschooling and how much anxiety there is around it following the pandemic, um, as though going through a global pandemic, you know, wasn't kind of confusing and discombobulating enough having to manage homeschooling and I think for me and I, I'm sure I'm, I'm speaking for many many other parents that the hardest part of homeschooling is the guilt that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and that your children are missing out and that they're falling behind and it's all your fault <laughs> and that is that that feeling is the hardest feeling and i I've noticed that feeling in myself. I'm actually homeschooling right now. Um, we're still in term here. We've only got a few days left because we're in the Southern Hemisphere here. And um, the schools have been closed now for a few weeks. And I notice it kind of ignites this anger in me because I feel guilty for not managing to facilitate the homeschooling as I would like plus my daughter who's eight has a lot of resistance to homeschooling she just wants to play because she's at home so she's like well I'm at home so home is a place where I relax and play I'm just gonna relax and play <laughs> so we have this difficult dynamic and um, I, I acknowledge that I I want to be more flexible and just explore that willing you know that kind of energy to play and have fun and let's be creative but then I feel this pressure and this guilt and then and then I also feel pressure to to do my own work and then I often end up just feeling angry um and it's it's not a good dynamic at all yeah I mean the whole system is like designed to crush the human spirit I mean, the crush the creativity that we have as adults and as children. So I would say if something, you know, seems toxic to you or dysfunctional and don't take it as the norm. I mean, it's okay to revolt against a status quo that's uh, quite toxic to the relationship that you have with your loved ones. Their mental health is more important than, you know, anything for, for me, at least. Uh, I, I care about their emotional health because many people, they will judge their character, they will assassinate their character. Uh, if I can be on their corner and uh, thinking the best uh, about them and giving my best to them, that will be really, really wonderful. Uh, I, I would say like 
the grief and loss that we went through the last 18 months um, has really exacerbated many things that predated the global pandemic. We all have been traumatized heavily. We all are wounded healers. Some of us are walking wounded. We have deep wounds and some of us are visibly bleeding and we try not to see each other trauma. You know, if I am bleeding front of you from a wound in my leg, everybody will rush me to the emergency room. Mm. But people are bleeding emotionally and we tell them, no, no, this is only in your head. You know, suck it up and uh, be strong and um, all of these negative, you know, societal taboos. So I would say when it comes to loss and grief, uh, I have learned something from working with a palliative care team. So working with people at the end of their life, uh, we can do three things. One is to focus on the quality of the relationship with, we have with our loved one. Uh, even if we don't have enough quantity, even if I'm working long hours, I'm a very busy parent. Whenever I am with uh, my child, I should be with my child. The, the amount and the quality of the relationship really, really matters. The second thing is to not parent out of guilt. So uh, we tried our best given the circumstances. I cannot undo the damage that was done yesterday. Uh, I can only strive to make today and tomorrow better than yesterday. And the third thing is to practice self-care and self-compassion. I cannot care for others if I forget my needs. That's really wonderful. Thank you so much for spelling out those three steps that we can go through or three things that we can remember. Could you just could just go over those three just briefly one more time? Because I think that was so helpful. And I think that could really be of use to so many listeners when they're sort of maybe struggling with their relationships, especially in this post-pandemic world. Well, we're still kind of coming through it, but in this strange pandemic era that we're in. Yeah, I mean, um, I would take, talk from personal experience. So uh, because of the war in Libya, as you know, it was a civil conflict. Unfortunately, there are people who took sides, you know, for or against the new revolution, for or against Mr. Gaddafi. Uh, so some of my family members, you know, they took sides too. But I focus on the quality of the relationship I have with all of my siblings because mm. uh, I was out of the country at the time. I uh, see wounds on both sides and mm. both of them are my siblings and I love them dearly. Mm. So I, I needed to focus on the quality of the relationship. Some of them I don't see. I haven't seen one of my children since 1999 because he's not allowed back in Libya because of his political affiliation. So I would love to see him one day in Egypt. It has been 22 years, but wow. uh, there are other ways I can honor that relationship. We can see each other through electronic you know, platforms and maybe uh, I can support him emotionally because he's alone. Mm. The, the rest of the family is inside Libya. So this is one way we, we, we can do it, um, focusing on the quality, even if we don't have the quantity. The quality, uh, another thing is yeah. to, mm -hmm. yeah. Another one is... Uh, really not to parent or be a caregiver out of guilt only. Everybody wow. will judge us as parents. Everybody will show our negative traits and tell mm. us what's wrong with us. Mm. Uh, we seem to not focus much on the positive, mm. even though most of the time we are engaging in positive behavior. Mm. So maybe we'll be more generous with the praise and with the positive feedback. Mm. And eventually, don't forget your needs. Uh, make sure that from time to time, you have to pause and 
fill your emotional tank. Because mm. even, even cars and machines, they need maintenance and they need breaks from time to time. Absolutely. So quality, um, the, the self-care part, and the second one was not... not, uh, not working guilt. this out of guilt. Yeah, yeah not, not responding to your child out of guilt. I think those three points are so helpful and will really be of use to so many parents and, and also people in all their relationships, in their sibling relationships, in their um, parental relationships with their parents and with their spouses as well. Yeah, one thing, yeah, and one thing you mentioned that that really um, interested me was this sense that when things go wrong, I, I was reading about this in your book that often in families there's a sense if there's a trauma that we hide it, um, and it also comes into what you were saying in relation to the wounded. You know, people are walking around wounded, but we hide it or we, we don't want to see it. What, what is that? Why, why is there so much kind of secrecy or hiding away the difficult parts of ourselves? Why do we find it so, much, so hard to admit when things are difficult and to willingly see the difficulties in others? Yeah, I mean, it comes from many places. Uh, most of them, they have to do with the way we were brought up um, so many families, they don't uh, value the emotional expression. They will tell you, you know, um, big boys don't cry and uh, children are supposed to only be seen, not to be heard. So we learn how to, um, you know, suck it up and really be silent when it comes to our suffering. So this is very unfair when our children, you know, I ask a group of children, like, what's your favorite animal? And uh, one of them he said, I wanted to be a fish. And uh, I said, why? He said, because when fish cry, nobody notices. You know? So some of our children, we can use a play and art therapy and find out deep issues that they are struggling with. And if we don't really sit with our children, somebody else will sit with them. If we don't give them the answers, they find the answer somewhere else. So the, the culture of secrecy might be coming from, the family culture it can be coming from, uh, you know, the environment that we are raised, many of us, they, we, we want to do it on our own. We think we are strong and independent. And this is usually we, should, we see that in the Western culture. When it comes to somebody from my culture, for example, from the Muslim or Arabic faith, we don't want to be a burden on our family. So we um, mm. continue to suffer in silence because they don't want to hurt other people with my own pain which is another, you know, um, dysfunctional uh, trait because I will take care of everybody else and I will listen to everybody else's trauma story. But uh, when it comes to my own wounds, I am not going to open up to anyone. And really, it's, we try to say I don't want to be a burden. But uh, if you are always silent and, you know, spacey and distant, if you are isolating and you know, hiding away from your family, this is a bigger burden for them. So maybe if you share a little bit of uh, the load that you have on your shoulder, it will actually lighten the load on everybody in the family. It will make the family you know, environment uh, more healthy. Uh, another thing I see maybe from the religion, and it's maybe a misinterpretation actually of a sacred text. Um, because like, you know, in Islam, for example, God is very clear about 
emotional expression. There is a whole story about Mary, the mother of Jesus, peace be upon him. And uh, when she was going through a difficult time uh, while she was pregnant with Jesus, and God gave her every single description of uh, what can she do to uh, cope with the postpartum depression she was struggling with. He gave her directions that uh, she should not dwell on negative thoughts, that wow. she should eat healthy, drink lots of water. She should have uh, sleep hygiene, not engage in people who wanted to engage her in negative thoughts. And, uh, you know, the company that we have can affect us. Uh, he, you know, pointed her to do a little bit of physical exercise. So all of these are very clear in most of the sacred text and the different, you know, religions. But unfortunately, uh, humans have misinterpreted many of uh, the sacred texts and for our different agendas. Some of us, we want to uh, get more fame or we want to cause, you know, people to hate each other and we want to cause division. And so most of the time I see culture and uh, religion are blamed for dysfunctions that happen in the family context, when in reality, many times, it is just a misinterpretation. That's so interesting. I've heard a definition of trauma um, as that it's essentially a separation of the mind and the body and, and the emotions. How, how does this separation occur? And how can we prevent it from happening? In ourselves. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the DSM-5, which is like the Bible of psychiatry, uh, uh, talks about the definition of uh, PTSD. And uh, one of the criteria is a dissociation. So we dissociate when we are going through a um, difficult or traumatic experience. I see that commonly with the survivors of sexual trauma, especially if uh, the sexual violation happened in a family context, if there is incest or if uh, the sexual predator, somebody that we know. So the child, because the experience is too traumatic for them, their mind will subconsciously dissociate and the body will be going through the experience alone while I will be watching what happens to me as if I'm watching a movie. Wow. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's a very difficult experience that needs integration in the future. And integration happens not uh, necessarily by listening to every single uh, painful, traumatic, graphic detail of what happens to me, but trying to make meaning out of it and trying to find how did I survive the worst? Uh, what did I learn from my experience, the human resilience, and finding even beauty in uh, what happened to me throughout the years. I mean, I had been through lots of uh, trauma, but I will never change anything about my trauma story. It made me a better human. I think that's one of the most powerful and beautiful things that you do in the way you talk about trauma. Um, there's a section in your book, Untangled, where you describe um, a traumatized family as a family that can heal and then come through the trauma as a, a stronger family as a result of it. And I think that's such a incredibly beautiful and almost an alternative narrative because I think there is this sense often that when there has been trauma it's as though something has been tarnished or damaged in an irreparable way and there's a sense that if we could erase that 
event if we could remove it as though it had never happened then we would obviously do that but the way you put it it's almost as though it reminds me of um there's there's a something in Japanese culture where um bowls Japanese bowls are repaired with gold and afterwards they're actually more beautiful and more valuable because of the cracks and the repairs in the cracks and it makes me the way you describe traumatized families and the way they can heal it reminds me of of that image um can you talk to us a bit more about how families can do that and and individuals how they can go about healing and repairing and actually integrating the trauma in a way that actually makes them a fuller um stronger version of themselves yeah absolutely uh, i'm sure you are aware of rumi rumi uh, very eloquently uh, said there are beautiful things you can only see in the dark which means you know in the dark we can see like the beautiful full moon we can see shining stars we can see fireworks we can see beautiful things but uh, he also means when it comes to the darkness of our trauma we should find like meaning and find healing and even try to find beauty in what happens to us and uh, i think if uh, we just maybe try to adapt that uh, frame of mind if uh, something bad happened to me uh, and we don't have to assign bad or good to what happens to us because this is really what caused the trauma to be traumatic it's not the event it's uh, my interpretation of what happens to me so i will find a meaning uh, of what happens first so this is the first step i will say something happened to my family and let me try to find meaning out of it and then practice lots of self compassion and uh, sometimes uh, you know that might mean and we need to open up about what happens to us to our children not necessarily to scare them but to prepare them not necessarily to uh, share graphic details but to share empowering ones so it's very important to be a more open parent and open you know channels of communication and build bridges of trust that maybe they are not built before that's why you know even when my children were um, going through their anxiety after me going back and forth to libya i had to do something to uh, bond and to repair the damage that happened in the relationship and that meant you know maybe i need to practice safe touch and uh, eye contact and maybe we can smile more towards each other maybe we can uh, listen to each other more deeply and i don't have to be the one always talking and maybe mm-hmm. i can uh, even apologize if i cause any repair in the relationship if, if there is any damage if there is any rupture uh, i need to immediately try to repair it because mm-hmm. this is what we do as a family so there are lots of things that uh, maybe starting with safety the first thing is foundation of safety and then building trust so we can start to listen to one another with compassion and eventually if everybody shares their side of the story we will find lots of uh, communality and rather than seeing each other as enemies i i think we will become a stronger family that way mm, that's so oh that's such a beautiful um description of of how parents and children can relate to each other and um there's so many parts to it that that really um fascinate me i think i think 
firstly, listening, deep listening, which, as you said, it's so important that we really listen to our children. Um, and also this the sense of stories and how powerful they are um, sharing you know, as I, I'm trying to do on this podcast, you know, moments of kindness and compassion and empathy and really telling those stories and emphasizing those. I think self-compassion is a really big one. And it seems as though it's a way of healing trauma. And I think it's a fairly new concept and and way of experiencing ourselves it seems as though so many of us tend to quite instinctively um, blame ourselves or harshly judge ourselves uh, when things go wrong um, whatever whatever the thing is and also if we do experience some level of trauma it can be very difficult for us to give ourselves a break or speak to ourselves kindly often our internalized voices can be quite harsh and I think there's a sense that that's how it should be or that's normal and if you don't have that voice then you will never actually achieve anything in life but I think probably the opposite is true can you speak about self-compassion and and the power that it has to heal yeah, I mean, uh, you you talk very beautifully about uh, the inner critic inside of us. We we try to you know be the center of the universe, and everybody will rely on us. And we see our uh, ourselves as failure if we just uh, cause one mistake, even if we save thousands of lives. If I lose one life, I see myself as a failure. Uh, so it's very important that uh, we see our emotional needs. And not as a cliche, uh, some of us, we say this is a fluffy material. We don't talk about emotions. Uh, these are very uh, soft things that we, as caregivers, we cannot show any vulnerability. And um, I need to always be strong for everybody around of me. But uh, really, self-compassion and self-care, I think if we see it as a responsibility rather than a luxury, many of us, we think it's just luxury that I cannot afford. But if uh, there are thousands of people that I'm holding on my shoulders and I am the foundation of uh, my community and my family and I'm the glue that holds everything together, it's only fair that I practice self-care because if I crumble, everybody else will crash with me. So uh, seeing uh, self-care and self-compassion as a you know, responsibility rather than you know, as a luxury is very important. And then actually engaging in a concrete, um, you know, ways to try to practice self-care because many of us we do self-care when we take time off most of the time we don't feel good after coming back from our vacation we mm -hmm. feel as tired as before the vacation and i believe that's because we, you know do, during our time off we only take care of our body but we mm -hmm. remember the human is made of body but also psyche or mind also heart or emotions and deep soul and our soul is what causes our, uh, you know, trouble with uh, the PTSD and try to process all of these trauma that happens to our people is a very, very deep wound that usually affects our morality very deeply. So I, I try to come with concrete actions, how to take care of your body, which is wonderful. You can do that uh, in isolation, but you can also do it as a community. Maybe we hold each other 
accountable for being kind towards one another and towards ourselves. So that's one thing we can do. Uh, another thing is to really try to maybe come up with the concrete things for our psyche. So uh, not talking negatively about ourselves, not engaging in self-loathing, trying to uh, challenge and change any uh, negative self-talk, talking nicely to our heart, uh, like having a community of care, having a social support network, and talking nicely to our soul, whatever it is, might be mindfulness, meditation, spirituality, religion. And my, my professor, Richard Mulika, who's the head of uh, the Harvard program on refugee trauma, uh, he said, storytelling is a verbal meditation. So just sharing our story can be uh, very healing. Mm -hmm. So th th that's one thing that uh, I'm very, you know, big fan of. And uh, there are like tips, I, we can maybe use one of them today, which is uh, if you feel that you are going through burnout and combustion fatigue and toxic stress, maybe remember the five R. Five R you can do for self-compassion. The first R, uh, you know, recognize that you need a break. So first is a recognition. And then uh, request a break or actually demand one. Uh, if they don't want to give you a break, and say, you know, um, I, part of protecting my sanity is asserting my boundaries. So mm -hmm. I need to make sure that my boundaries are respected. And then actually relax during your break. Because many people, Yvonne, they actually engage in uh, stressful things when they take a break. <laughs> they go to their social media and they watch things, updates on everything around them. So if you are on your break, make sure that you enjoy your break by taking care of yourself. And then realize your priorities. Maybe not everything on your plate have to be done today. Mm. If you have the lots of things on your plate, uh, prioritize, downsize, minimize, and delegate. Uh, it's okay. I mean, you don't have to do everything on your own. And the last thing, you can re-engage more refreshed and re-centered and be more available for the people that you care for. Gosh, that's so useful and so powerful. I'm sure that lots of people will really find that such a sort of helpful tool. Um, and you're right. I think we're, we're just, there's just such a strong tendency in us to feel like we have to do everything now and we have to, I mean, you mentioned social media, but I, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling as though it's not just that I go on social media to, to check um, what's happening in the world or to catch up. It's often feels like an obligation, um, you know, that I ha I'm part of various groups. And if I don't join in or show my face or tell everybody what I've been up to, that somehow I'm sort of, um, I'm doing something wrong. And then there, again, there's this feeling of guilt coming up. Um, do you think social media has, has actually, you know, has there been a toll on our mental health um, as a result of social media? Is that something you've noticed? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, many times social media is anything but social. Many times uh, it is almost antisocial. And I, I see our children uh, comparing, you know, themselves to all these, uh, you know, people on social media that have the perfect body and the perfect life and who have a better selfie than they are today. And uh, their, you know, their friends might uh, want to unfriend them if you don't like or comment on a status. And 
all of these pressures I did not live with as a child, so I feel privileged that way. But it's an unfair added pressure on our children. Mm. And given that now they are, uh, you know, behind a screen for long, long hours every day because of online schooling, mm. we really need to have compassion towards uh, our children and not see them or see the internet as the enemy, mm. but model healthy way of how to use the cyberspace. And what is the, the modern healthy way to use the cyberspace in your opinion? I mean, uh, um, I, me and my wife, we do things different. She, she runs an organization for refugees and she has more than 100 families under her care. So she has like 600 people that she needs to take care of. And my approach is, you know, um, she does everything for the refugees, like, uh, you know, immigration, interpretation, transportation, whatever it is. Uh, I do the psychosocial aspects. So I have the easy part, uh, if you like. And she does like 90% of the work. But then I say at 9 p.m., I'm going to switch off my cell phone because if there is an emergency, there is an emergency room. You could call 911 or you can call the emergency number or go to you know the nearest crisis team. Or There are other ways. I, I cannot be on call 24-7 every single day of the year. Uh, she tends to want to be on call the whole time. Mm. So I will wake up at two and three in the morning and she's answering phone and, you know, replying to text. And uh, I, I think that's what, why she's having more burnout and compassion fatigue mm. more than I do. Mm. So one way of uh, being healthy, uh, engaging the social media is to really use it for a specific goals and maybe for a specific, uh, you know, amount of time. And she has more than 1000 friends on Facebook. I have only nine friends who are my siblings. Uh, my dad does not use the internet and my mom died in 2016. So I only have my siblings on my Facebook page. And that's how I keep updated on what happens in my home country. And then, you know, um, I, I, I think if you check your social media and email, maybe twice a day, just uh, when you come from work and before you go to sleep, that's more than enough. But uh, our fear of missing out is a syndrome that's causing lots of anxiety it's true and it's a deep fear uh and i'm sure it's yeah it's not really helping anyone or adding hugely in a beneficial way to anything um but yet we still feel compelled to do it i wanted to um ask you um sort of coming to the end of the conversation now one of the things i wanted to ask you was about um third culture kids um and uh, this is partly because I have three third culture kids of my own. And um, I'm sure that, that lots of people um, will, will be in a similar situation, people who are living in a different country to the, the home country of their parents. Um, do you think you could explain to us what third culture kids are and also what parents can do to help sort of minimize the stress or even the trauma um, that could be felt by the children and the family as a whole um, when they find themselves in a new and different culture. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart because, uh, you know, my trauma story is, is, seems to be a, a little, you know, graphic when it comes to these encounters that my children have with hate and racism and discrimination 
you know, my girls, they come from the Islamic faith, so they practice their religion, they wear the hijab or the Islamic, you know, dress. And many times people will tell them, go back to your home country, or they tell them, you know, things about terrorism that unfair for children to hear. Mm. And uh, I think, uh, you know, sometimes they come and they share things that happen to them uh, on the streets or at school or online. And uh, we try to have an open door policy and we tell them this is a safe house and they should feel safe coming to us. And they did that. They come three in the morning because they had a nightmare, or uh, mm-hmm. which I think it's uh, extremely uh, unfortunate. Our children go through this because they look different or they have a different background. But, uh, you know, when they go to Libya, for example, they did not feel that uh, they belong there. Mm. Uh, they are here in the United States. They don't feel that they are 100% welcomed here either. Mm. So the third culture children need to have lots of uh, self-love, self-compassion. And we need to work on their self-worth, make sure their identity is very solid. So as a family, that uh, we tell them that they are loved unconditionally, that they should be proud of every aspect of who they are, their skin color, their accent, their religion, the way they dress, their, their skin color, doesn't matter what it is. They uh, are loved this way because this is why God chose to create them. And this is how God chose to create them. And if somebody doesn't like something about me, uh, that's a reflection of who they are. It doesn't really bother me. Uh, if something uh, they think is wrong with me, uh, I love myself and I try to insert that self-love in my children. But it takes lots of discipline. In the beginning, it was very difficult coming to America. And uh, I came here in 2002. So it was uh, five months after September 11. Gosh. And it was very difficult uh, time to live in America. So every time I hear there is a terrorist attack, I would say, oh, my God, not another Muslim. So I had that internalized racism. Mm. But I don't do that anymore because uh, I'm more comfortable sharing my trauma story and taking the podium to write my own narrative. So we need to give each other uh, spaces so we can talk about our story in a way that makes meaning to us. And I, I, I tell my story, not the story that was dictated on me. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all of that so openly and honestly. It's very moving to hear about your experience and really to get a sense of what it must be like for your girls to be in America and then also feeling a bit disconnected from America and and similarly feeling that way when they go back to Libya. Um, But remember, I mean, remember not uh, everything is... uh is bad. There are Ooh. very, very kind people that uh, you need to associate yourself with. Like mm-hmm. after the uh, New Zealand mosque shooting, mm-hmm. if you remember, there are 51 people who were killed, mm-hmm. you know, during a Friday prayer. Um, one of my Jewish colleagues, I have never met him before. He reached out by phone. He said, you know, Omar, can we meet over coffee? And he told me that uh, that day he wanted to just listen to my voice and hear my story and have safe space for my emotions so that was everything that I needed that day that uh, minute or that moment of tenderness Mm. that uh, a total stranger decided to reach out and that made a difference so there are many beautiful things that happen on a daily basis and um, that's why I try to focus on the positive and on the beauty of the human spirit
Mm, absolutely that is so beautiful and so true and again that's that's what I'm trying to do with the tenderness revolution and one of the things that I am fascinated by is this sense of clinging to difference and why is it that humanity can't seem to get past this sense of fear I think of difference I believe that if we can somehow dissolve a fear of difference and try and replace it with curiosity then I think so many of the world's biggest problems really would would be at least if not solved lessened what what is it about difference that humans find so frightening and how can we get over this yeah i mean it's a big topic that you know many times we have learned that if somebody is different that means they are threatening to our own existence you know if somebody comes to my home country as a refugee or asylum seeker maybe they are here to take over my religion or my culture or my resources or our jobs or uh, you know, social welfare system, whatever it is. So that, that self, uh, you know, uh, threat that I'm afraid that my own, you know, type, my own group, my in-group kind of mentality is going to, you know, basically be extinct or um, no longer exist because somebody else is coming, which is very interesting. I think if we collaborate rather than compete, we will live in a better world. Uh, I think uh, looking at each other with not only curiosity, which I love the three C's that you know came up with, you know, living with curiosity, but also with courage and compassion, and you are exactly embodying that with your family living, you know, in uh, Botswana, uh, living behind family and loved ones in the United Kingdom. But uh, remember, I mean, not everybody is uh, as brave and courageous as you are. It takes very large amount of self-discipline to be able to reach out to somebody else. And uh, remember, like, if you reach out to someone uh, and invite them to the table, and uh, even if they are at the table, you reach out to them and get to know them. If they are not at the table. You ask why they were not invited in the first place. If somebody new moved to my neighborhood, I'll be the first one to reach out. That's how we find that you know, small moments of uh, tenderness and beauty in each other. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I love that example of, of reaching out to someone. And that brings me to my final question, which is actually about the three C's. And it's about the fact that this quality of tenderness for ourselves and others is embodied in these three C's because they enable us to fully see the truth about the way things are. And for me, courage, curiosity, and compassion embody that. And I wanted to ask you if you had to choose one of these qualities that means the most to you in your life, which would you choose and why? <laughs> They're very difficult to choose because all of them are uh, like fundamentally important. Uh, I would say compassion, just because uh, it's the, the memory of my mom. So if, if you know my mom, she is somebody who will stop by families that uh, lost loved ones or families who their loved one is in the hospital. And these are total strangers. She just goes and visits random people. 
And I said, mom, why are you doing that? She said, maybe I don't know them, but I know that they are in pain and maybe just showing up, maybe I can take away some of their pain and suffering. So I would love to live by her example. She told me the last thing I heard from her, she said, if you cannot be somebody's source of joy and delight, don't be the source of their pain and distress. So compassion will, I think, win because of my mom's memory. Oh my goodness, Omar, what a beautiful story to end on and what an incredible woman she sounds like. And she has obviously had such a profound impact on you and you are living on in the work that you do. You are carrying that that kindness and compassion through and spreading it in the world. I really, have really enjoyed our conversation today and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me um, for this podcast. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. It's been my honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tenderness Revolution. I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us